0: What was the internet like before the World Wide Web? It's episode 360 of the Dan York Report and last week on March 12th was the 30th anniversary of the start of the World Wide Web when Tim Berners-Lee over at uh, CERN started up his first proposal, et cetera, for what would become the web. And I wrote a post for the Internet Society's blog celebrating the 30th anniversary of the World Wide Web that attracted a bit of attention and I thought it was worth expanding a bit on. Back at the time, in those early days in late 1980s, early 1990s, it was a a very different world. The internet was there. It was there for email, for other things, but it was very different, and it's worth talking a bit about that. At the time... I was graduating from the University of New Hampshire. I was working on with some startups. I was doing some things with some nonprofits, and then I was involved with a training company that was teaching people how to use FrameMaker publishing software, electronic publishing software to go back a ways. And I w- we were teaching people about Unix, Sun to be precise, Solaris later, those things. Teaching people about how to use these tools for electronic publishing for all of these different kinds of things, and. I was writing, I was traveling around teaching a course about an introduction to the Internet. The students were primarily from telecom companies, financial companies, software companies, around the primarily the Boston, New York kind of area. They were looking to understand what this Internet thing was all about. I was, and so I was teaching them. I taught them about what IP addresses were, what the DNS was, how it worked to go connect from one computer to another, how to send email how to use FTP to transfer files, how to use things like Archie to find files in in uh, FTP or, or Veronica to find info in Gopher and other different things that were out there. This whole place called Gopher Space, which was menu-driven kind of things, Usenet discussions, all this stuff. And in the very back of the book, I had a section on emerging technologies. And in there... I covered some of the new things in 1991 that were coming around. There was something called Telnet, which was a hypertext. You'd telnet to something, you'd get hypertext elements. There was a Waze, which, WAIS, which was a wide area information search. And, and then I had what I recall was a single page talking about this new thing called the World Wide Web. And all it really said was, you know, telnet to info.cern.ch. Log in as www and and start pressing numbers to follow links on the on the screen. You can actually visit this if you wanted to go back to those days. To go, you can go to info.cern.ch and what they've done is they've created they've recreated the original info.cern.ch site and some other things. And you can go in and see what it was like to browse in that first original text based browser. Because what you did was you went in and you, you, you clicked on numbers. Well, you didn't click on, you pressed numbers. You would Telnet, which is a service to go and log in remotely. You would Telnet into the server. And then when you wanted to go and read a page, what we'd say today, click or tap a link, you would press the number next to it. So on a web page, there were numbers for each link. So if you wanted to go to a certain link, you'd press 2 or 3 or whatever, and it would bring you to that next page where then there would be another set of links, each of which had a number, and you press that number to go to it. This was actually pretty radical in some ways because the predominant thing we had on the open internet at that time was Gopher, this other technology out of the University of Minnesota originally, that had a system for doing this, but it was all menus, So you would choose a menu and you would go down different menus, a menu structure, to get to different pieces of content. But the web allowed us to not be menu-based. You could have this page of text and wherever it was appropriate, you could have a link that you would follow and to go in that. It uh, It was radical, it was different, it was new, and it was tiny. It was basically one server sitting in Switzerland originally. And then something radical happened. But to talk about how radical it was, let's back up a minute and talk about the state of the internet at that point in time, and maybe go back a little bit and talk about the state of the online world. Because at the time, there was a good bit of content out there, but it was primarily in three places. It was a lot of the content that we think of today, you know, news reports, uh, media information, stuff like that, that was in the commercial, what we call them, the information services, Things like CompuServe, America Online, Prodigy, Delphi, Genie. There were many, many of these different services. And they all were you know, content that you would get to by dialing in. You'd use a modem. You'd connect into a phone number. You'd get in and you'd log into the service. You'd, oftentimes you had software on your own computer that would do the connection for you. Think about all the CDs that you got from AOL and everywhere else. You paid a monthly fee to gain access to all of this content that was being created in there. And newspapers and magazines and others you know, were trying out this model, publishing their information inside what many of us called walled gardens. There was a wall around them. Once you were inside, you could see the pretty content, work with the stuff, see all the things. But you were inside this walled garden. You had to pay a monthly fee to gain access. And if you wanted to publish in there, you typically had to pay the platform you had to pay the information service or maybe you could create a forum you could join a forum you could do something but very often you had to ask permission to go and create a forum or do something like that so you needed permission or payment to publish and you could only access it if you paid the fee to get in there and that was where a lot of the online content was in those days now there were two other places where it was One was the universities and national research and engineering networks, NRENs. That that was where the Gopher was. That was where FTP, that was where all this different stuff, the networks that were out there, they were separate networks. They were things like BitNet in the United States, Janet over in the in the UK and other places, Earn over in Europe, they were national you know networks or, or regional networks that connected people together. And in the third place there was a lot of content was bulletin board systems or BBSs. And they were run by anybody who loaded up the software, put it on their, put it on what would be now we'd call a server, and put some modems on there people could dial into. Some of these were run by companies, some of these were run by individuals, a lot of hobbyists, a lot of other people put them out there. Some of them even linked together using something called Fidonet. So you had a FIDONET uh, connection that would go and link you together so you could host content from different BBSs or send messages across them and other things. And some of them used Usenet, which was this larger network of discussion forums that were out there. So that was kind of where all the content was. And a lot of it was in these commercial information services. So what happened with the the research networks? and the rise of what became known as the internet it was this network i often said you know it's the the one network to interconnect them all it, it started to interconnect these different networks it had these open standards tcp ip all of this emerged out of things like the arpanet and other stuff but it started to connect more and more of these networks and that was what the internet was then and is today. It's this global network of networks that voluntarily agree to interconnect using open common standards. And at the time, you again, you had email, you had FTP, you had Gopher, you had Usenet, you had different tools for communication that were part of this. And then along came the web. And what was radical about what Tim Berners-Lee did with the web and with the pieces like that was he not only created info.cern.ch, but he also just gave away the source code to go and publish, create your own web server, publish, create your own web client, you know, publish your own content. And that was it. He wasn't asking for a fee. He wasn't asking for licensing rights. He wasn't doing anything like that. He said, here, you know, take this stuff, go make your own websites, make your own stuff, you know, create this and, and do this and and that's really what brought about the magic of the web at at 1991 it was you know one page in the back of my introduction to the internet course just a year or two later we were you know i was writing courses on how to build websites and how to navigate the web using netscape navigator and so many more things because the web had emerged as this is a powerful way to share information and anybody can do it you know it was it was uh, it was powerful. The web enabled anyone to publish and to consume content. If you could get onto the internet, which in, admittedly was a bit of a challenge. You had to typically go through a university network or some of the bulletin board systems started to have access to some ways to do it. But if you could gain access to that in some way, then you could consume content. You could publish your own content. There were no gatekeepers. You didn't have to ask permission. You could just set up your own web server or get space on somebody else's web server, and you could publish your own content. You know, content broke free of those walled gardens of the commercial information systems. The web brought this open layer of publishing, of communications, of commerce. And and that's, that's what the web brought 30 years ago. You know, I mean, whole new industries were born. You know, others faded away. New words entered our vocabulary. I mean, how many of us ever said the word browser before, before the web came along? You know, we had new opportunities emerge for so many people around the world. You know, people could work remotely. They could share. They could sell their goods from, to people far away. They could share their information. They could do that. Lives were changed. Education changed. Economies changed. The very fabric of our society fundamentally changed by virtue of this open publishing platform sitting on top of this open interconnected network of networks that we call the internet. And it's true that the web could not exist without the internet, but as I said in the article, the internet would not be as amazing as it is without the web. The two enriched each other the internet allowed the web to be passed all over to be able to used and accessed from around the world but the web gave people a reason to use the internet it gave people a reason to try to connect to the internet instead of subscribing to these commercial information services and working with it the internet and the web together set that content free in so many different ways now you know fast forward a couple of years those commercial internet information services, the commercial information services, really became internet services in many ways and started to make their content available and let people you know, access it, publish it on the web. They tried for many years to hold on to the exclusivity of having their little walled garden, having special content that you could only get inside those walled gardens. But eventually the web, the internet, wore that all down and you had access all over. What's kind of interesting to think about now, of course, is you know, 30 years later, there is a return in some ways to some of those online gardens, those uh, walled gardens of content. You're seeing some of the new services, some of the new streaming services, some of the new things that are outside of of the web, but they're attempting to get people to be back inside those walled gardens. Now, and that's an interesting spot to talk about because the web of today is very different from the web of 30 years ago it's a much different space. And we've also seen along the way that the model of allowing anyone to publish anything anywhere is not always positive. We've seen a lot of hate speech, a lot of you know, fake and bogus information. We've seen a lot of negative things. We've seen that as much as it is a power for good and to interconnect people and to share information to help in so many ways, it also provides interconnection of negativity. You know, we had a shooter this last week live stream out his shooting of information out across the internet and across, you know, being shared from websites and different places. We've seen things like that. We've seen consolidation and centralization on a major, major way, bringing back in the possibility of gatekeepers of content of different types of things like that. We've seen legislation that's been pushed by governments looking to protect their citizens and pushing simplistic answers that cause larger problems. We've seen this kind of thing. And today, we really have this question, what will the next 30 years of the web look like? You know, there's half the world that's not yet online how will we get them online but when we get them online what will the web be? What will the internet be? What will the services be that they will have access to? How do we ensure that they're open and globally accessible? How do we ensure they're secure and trustworthy? My organization that I work for the Internet Society wrote a report this year just this past month, February they released called the Global Internet Report which you can find at future.internetsociety.org where we talk about the rising centralization and consolidation and ask these questions around, is it the kind of future we want? There are many positive sides to consolidation. It's given us capabilities and powers we would not have had 10 years ago. But there's a negative side The centralization of all this information, the aggregation of previously separate and private information into large places where it can be advertised, you know, we can be advertised to, we can be aggregated and have our privacy much more reduced. What is the right thing? Tim Berners-Lee himself has said that we need to re-decentralize the web. It's become too centralized and too many pieces around that. And it's happening not just at the internet layer or at the web layer. I mean, it's happening at all layers of the internet. There's a consolidation around internet service providers, around messaging providers, around you know, all sorts of different elements around there. What is the right choice? What is the right future that we want to have? There's a lot to think about. This internet of ours has only really been around for maybe 50 years from its early stages. And the web has only been here for 30 years. We have a lot more growing up to do and a lot more to think about and to work with. It's a crazy time. I'd love to hear comments about any or all of this. You can leave them here at soundcloud.com slash danyork or anywhere that you see this uh, this post on social media. I would also encourage you to, to look at the report that my colleagues at the Internet Society put together. Again, it's at future.internetsociety.org. Do take a look and look at that. Also, look at all the content coming out of the World Wide Web Consortium and the Web Foundation on this 30th anniversary. I'll have a link for the show notes. It's, uh, It's an amazing time. The Web has given us so much opportunity, so many amazing things. We have a choice. We have a choice of futures, and we need to choose the one that doesn't break the Internet in the way that we know it. The Internet is for everyone, and we need to ensure that it stays that way. Thanks for listening. Again, you can find more of my audio and writing at danyork.me. Thanks for listening and bye for now.